Defense Department might have gotten about all of the mileage it can out of its special pay and personnel system for cyber and IT people. Now officials say it's time to expand it, potentially delivering more competitive salaries to tens of thousands of more IT employees across the department. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu writes about this in federalnewsnetwork.com. He joins us now. Well, what has changed if everyone, apparently there's more people they feel they need to get into the system? Are they running short of people? What's their what's their play here? Yeah, that's right. This actually goes back several years now, Tom, to when Congress first created what's called the Cyber Accepted Service, which was in the 2016 National Defense Authorization Act. So going quite a ways back, it took DOD quite a while to actually use all of the authority that Congress gave it to move folks into the special pay and personnel system for cyber employees. DOD's interpretation of the law that Congress wrote back then is that it only allows them to move about 15,000 people into this special pay system. They are now, this summer, planning to send Congress a legislative proposal that would expand that potentially up to about 75,000 employees. So a lot of extra folks potentially into that system where they almost certainly would get more pay than they're getting right now from the general schedule. And do they have a pretty good idea of the total cost of this? Because I just ask, because topically what's going on now is there's a pay raise coming across the board for DOD. And now, thanks to the debt deal, it looks like there's going to be some caps on spending, even for DOD, although it's up a little bit. Yeah, there's there's no real way to estimate the total cost. Because, first of all, we don't know that they would go all the way up to that 75000 estimate. And frankly, that's one of the things DOD likes about this cyber-accepted service approach. You can pick and choose individual positions that you want to convert from the standard uh, Title V system into the cyber-accepted service, rather than just moving an entire military service or moving the entire Defense Department which obviously would be a very costly endeavor. And that's a contrast to the special salary rate that the Office of Personnel Management rolled out earlier this year, or at least started to propose is probably a better way to put it, for all 2210s, as they call them, all IT employees across the federal government, that that you know departments at the department level or agency level could fully opt their workforce into or out of. That's obviously very expensive, and it's one of the reasons why it's looking increasingly unlikely that it'll actually happen in any agency this year. DOD, for example, estimates that going to that special salary rate for everyone would cost about $740 million per year. That's obviously not in the budget because that proposal from OPM came out after the budget submission was out. So Patrick Johnson, the director of the DOD CIO's Workforce Innovation Directorate, talks here about why um, the the uh, department doesn't prefer that approach. So you can imagine the department's not in favor of taking that approach that wide, wide swath to, you know, get after everybody like that. So we favor a more targeted approach where we look at the areas within 2210s because 2210s, I've got 52 different work roles coded against 2210s when I look. So I've got about 40, 47,000 2210s of that 37,000 authorizations. You're looking at about 11,000 uh, vacancies. So how do I move the move the dial? I would rather focus on the top 20 uh, work roles where I have high, high attrition rates of over 50%. How do I get that down? And then manage it, manage it that way. I mean, think about that, Tom. 50% vacancies in some of those work roles. And, and one of the other good things DOD has done to get after this problem is coming up with much more discrete definitions of what those work roles are rather than just having a giant pool of all 2210s. They have literally dozens and dozens of defined work roles that are based on what people actually do and not based on their job title. That was a result of the cyber workforce strategy that DOD uh, rolled out earlier this year. 
plus there's some expansion going on. Artificial intelligence is coming on real big, and there's the idea of a little bit more aggressive cyber outreach, let's call it, versus purely defensive monitoring of the networks. So the field itself is changing, and that seems to give them some impetus to go ahead with this. Yeah, that's right. And those AI and data and software-related work, uh, you know, those are some of those 72 work roles that DOD has already come up with, and I think they're most likely going to be adding more. And another reason I think they see this cyber-accepted service approach as preferable is it also gives them a way to tailor the pay to not just individual positions, but individual geographic areas. They, they do that with what's called a targeted local market supplement that's designed in, in some ways a lot like locality pay. It's designed to make the positions that you have in a given geographic area competitive with what labor costs actually are for comparable private sector positions in that area. You know, the government pay scale, even in that system, is probably never going to match up with what private uh, private sector employers are paying, but it at least gets them a lot closer. Right, because they do have installations in Southern California, as well as in distant places in the upper Midwest that are cold all the time. Those places simply command different salaries. But on the other hand, they might need to attract people, say, from a nice area that's really attracted to the mission. But if you're going to move to Minot, North Dakota, then you probably need to pay people to go there. I think that's right. And I think DOD is increasingly moving to, you know, having its cyber workforces in large concentration centers. I mean, you think about, you know, the Army's new cyber cyber command in Georgia consolidated a lot of its workforce in one place there. And you see similar things in other services. And, and, and you know, that that's that's another reason why having these targeted local market supplements probably makes sense, because you can do a lot more tailoring and thinking about what it is that what does it actually cost to attract and retain people in a particular area? I guess maybe the downside is not so much a downside, but the potential danger is getting into a situation where pay patterns developed that could be seen as discriminatory if you look at the workforce as a whole. Yeah, I think that's a legitimate concern. And another thing to watch as this all plays out is the extent to which remote work is still allowed for a, for a lot of this workforce. You know, obviously, everybody went remote during COVID. Different organizations are having <laughs> different uh, responses now that we're able to get back into the office. And so if you have a large proportion of the workforce that's still remote, how exactly do you adjust their targeted local market supplements? Which geographic area do you assign them to? I don't think we completely know the answers to questions like that yet. All right. So just to summarize, then, they've got 15,000 positions authorized under the Special Accepted Service, Cyber, and now they're looking to 75,000, but that's the ceiling, and likely they won't go that number, but somewhere between 15,000 and 75,000. Yeah, 75000 I would describe as probably more like an estimated ceiling. And I should emphasize that really depends on Congress authorizing this additional authority, this expansion of the Cyber Accepted Service and the upcoming NDAA. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Thanks so much. You bet, Tom. And check out his federal report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, 
and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where 
sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, 
you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.